Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI-101, we talked about the aftermath of the assassination of Julius Caesar, an uncertain and frightening time for Rome. As the dust settled, two main options for the future of Rome emerged, Octavian, Caesar's legal heir, and Antony, Caesar's former political partner and friend. And while they had settled into an uneasy alliance by the end of the episode, this time we'll watch the two drift apart and eventually go to war with each other. Let's begin. We're here on HI 101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And we've been talking about, weirdly enough, a lot about Julius Caesar, even though I kind of said at the outset I didn't really want to talk that much about Julius Caesar. He kind of has that effect. He just sort of envelops everything he touches. What a great guy. What what an amazing guy. Big fan of his salad. Um, Boo. (laughs) I deserve that. But yeah, last time we talked about mainly... Uh, his co-consul Mark Antony's reaction to his death and his attempts to kind of hold things together in the aftermath aftermath of the assassination, as well as Caesar's legal heir, Octavian, returning to claim that birthright, or inheritance, I suppose, maybe a better word than birthright. And Mark Antony did well for a while and probably prevented a massive disaster, but It certainly came at the cost of his own political career, because ultimately the compromises that he made uh, in the wake of Julius Caesar's assassination weren't really tenable positions. Um, Sooner or later, he was going to have to make a call. And in the end, he kind of just made neither call and and lost a lot of respect. However, uh, he got lucky in that Octavian saw some value in him and... When we left things, he was back in power as a as an official member of the Second Triumvirate, along with Octavian and uh, Lepidus, who no one remembers. I wanted to clarify that, actually. Mm-hmm. It seemed like a sudden switch from Mark Antony not liking Octavian to uh, working with him in a triumvirate. There's a big difference between dismissing this boy who has a tenuous legal claim on the on the on the fortunes of Julius Caesar when you are the consul of Rome and agreeing to work with the publicly recognized rightful heir of Caesar who has the command of his troops uh the command of his wealth uh when you are also in a position where you are being hunted like a dog he had just lost a, a significant battle against 
Octavian, though, it seems like, was there no bad blood there? Certainly there was bad blood, but I mean, there's a difference between liking someone and having to work with somebody. So Mark Antony was ultimately a practical man. Um, I'm not sure if that's the way that this entire thing is going to play out necessarily, but and I think... everything worked out forever. But I think it would be fair to say that Mark Antony recognized when he was being given a second chance. Okay. Because really, what what opportunity did he have the way things would have played out if he hadn't accepted octavian's offer is octavian would have branded him a traitor and used a campaign against mark antony to solidify public opinion towards himself in his stance against mark antony remember uh, mark antony was in this weird position of not really being popular with either the senators or the common people uh, at the time of his flight. So it would have been very easy to take that and turn it into a narrative of Octavian liberating everyone from uh, a man who could have been a second Caesar, because that was kind of the fear. I would say the far more difficult political stroke was managing to spin that into a strong triumvirate. That's not an obvious or an easy path towards success from there. It seems kind of whiplashy. I mean, we are covering a lot of time uh, in a relatively short amount of, of uh, minutes, but you know, it, it it happened within less than a year, sure. But I, I think the other side of this uh, that we should mention is that Mark Antony knew he was taking a gamble when he invaded Salpine Gaul. He was in the wrong. It was illegal to do so, and he really had no right being there. He's not the one who has to make peace with that arrangement. I think it's Octavian who has to be okay with forgiving, or if not forgiving, then certainly being willing to work with Mark Antony in that situation. That's fair. Really, in in the in the prisoner's dilemma type square that Mark Antony is working with there, choosing to cooperate is, is kind of his only option. The reward is so much higher than than choosing not to cooperate because choosing not to cooperate is probably a very undignified death. Hmm. While all this had been kind of shaking out with Mark Antony, though, um, the Liberatories had taken control of Roman territories in the east um, and had also struck up relationships with Roman client kingdoms uh, to garner support for themselves. And they also had support within uh, Rome, kind of secret support that, uh, that that was still in favor of those who had assassinated Caesar, but maybe weren't willing to necessarily go public to the extent of leaving the uh, city of Rome altogether. And that was really where the, tri the triumvirate was looking to move next. Technically, the eastern provinces were under the control of Mark Antony in this, uh, this uh, triumvirate uh, arrangement. He didn't really have a lot of control because of that unrest. And so under the two um, goals of securing the, the, the empire and bringing these people to justice, the triumvirs began pulling together the troops and money needed to declare war. Now, one of the ways that they did this was to bring back an old tool of Sulla's, the uh, proscriptions. Which meant that there were as many as 300 senators and as many as 1,200 people of noble birth who basically had their names show up on a list one day, and their property was now that of the triumvirate. And if they were found within the city walls, they 
had had their citizenship uh, stricken and were technically criminals now because of these lists. And, and so they could be killed. So they tried to get out as quickly as possible. And, and many of them didn't make it out of the city. Uh, most famously, Cicero was actually killed in these purges. And these were people who had supported the senators that uh, killed Caesar? Yeah, the liberatores. Yeah, they, they, were, they were supporters of the liberatores or people who were seen as extremely dangerous political enemies uh, of the triumvirs. Um, you, you know, it's, it's not the kind of thing that you just got on the list just because they all had, there, there were sort of a, there, there were sort of tacit hearings as to who was getting on the list and why not with a terrible amount of due process or anything like that, but everyone kind of had their their reasons for adding names to the list. And partially because of the way uh, the three men had disparate goals in life and partially as a show of impartiality, kind of, each of them lost people who were actually very close to them in these purges, but there was this big show of like, this isn't for us personally, this is for the good of the Republic. I believe both Lepidus and Antony lost people as close as like brother-in-laws or brothers or something like that. I, I forgot to make a note of it. So these proscriptions had the dual effect of securing their position politically because they managed to get rid of some of their worst detractors in all of this, which is a great way to solidify power. And all of this property that they confiscated, they used to pay for troops. Handy. Very handy. Uh, they ended up actually sending 28 legions after the Liberatories. They they left Lepidus behind in uh, Rome to look after domestic affairs, and Antony and Octavian marched with these 28 legions. They set up for a uh, battle outside of the city of Philippi in Macedonia, and the, the triumvirs ended up deploying uh, 19 of these legions to the battlefield. You, you always need reserves and, and people controlling your supply chain and things like that but to put 19 legions on the field um that could be anywhere in the neighborhood of 80 to a uh, 80 to 100,000 uh troops and I, I mean it could be even more than that considering auxiliaries who sometimes aren't counted cavalry is counted separately sometimes they don't even count archers in the the troop numbers um the roman military had a a, a massive fixation on the infantrymen, the, the man on the ground, right. um, and and to, to to the point where they yeah sometimes had some odd calculus in terms of who was actually there. But I think there's this um, this conception that armies were very very small until very very recently, and I'd, I'd like to point to this as an example of how that is not necessarily the case. That's true. However, Napoleon's line of thirty thousand a month. I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying we've never surpassed this. It's just that's fair. Um, you know, even even Napoleon would blink a couple times at a at an army of a hundred thousand plus. Um, that would not be a, a small thing for him. I mean, he did have a pretty big ego. But he did. Yeah, sure. That's, that's... That is a big number. Yeah. Anyways, oh, you know what? I noticed something in my notes here. I had eighty two hundred thousand written down. Um, Plus as many as thirty thousand more cavalry. So, oh. yeah, yeah, no, we're we're talking more like one hundred twenty thousand. Um, the liberatories had about seventeen legions, but a lot less supporting uh, troops. There were also issues within ranks of the liberatory forces because some of those legions 
had previously been deployed under Caesar. And the Liberatories were asking them to fight against Caesar's heir. And there were all sorts of high-minded speeches about, you know, you weren't serving Caesar the man, you were serving the Republic. And uh, these men are coming here, are trying to destroy the Republic, and blah, 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 blah. Obviously, they lost a whole bunch of troops. Come on, guys. Old Gil really needs this. (laughs) Basically. The way it ended up shaking out was Brutus faced Octavian, and Cassius faced Mark Antony. And we talked last time about Octavian not actually being that skilled a commander. And Brutus managed to start pu- uh, pushing his forces back somewhat. And it probably would have been a victory if it, uh, for Brutus if it was just Brutus and Octavian. But Cassius, for some reason, got a report that Brutus had actually been killed in battle. It was a mistaken report. These sorts of things happen every once in a while. And he was in the process of being pushed back by Mark Antony's forces. So from where he's sitting, he's fighting a losing battle and his other commander has been killed. He decides to take the Roman commander's way out and falls on his sword, commits suicide. This is actually one of those things that sort of holds up a little bit in terms of like stories that get told about types of people in history this whole uh this whole myth of the the roman commander falling on their sword is not really a myth that's a thing that they would do um to lose a battle to to lose certain sorts of battles we're seeing were seen as so dishonorable that it was more honorable to take your own life uh and die there on the battlefield than to return defeated the culture of military success in rome is is nothing to be trifled with that suicide and and uh antony's uh success overall um basically leads to uh, massive confusion in the battle and and kind of a an overall military draw but cassius is now dead and he was by strong by far the stronger of the two military commanders that's why antony took him on uh giving brutus to uh, octavian there's a second battle at philippi uh, later in October, uh, this is 42 CE or BCE that we're talking about here. The second battle results in a decisive defeat of the Liberatories. Um, and Brutus actually also ends up uh, taking his own life before he can be captured. The fate that's awaiting them after capture is not a good one. Oh. It's understandable why they might take that way out. Um, they're, they're likely looking at... Um, eventual crucifixion although what's going to happen to them before they get to that point is up for question uh almost certainly they will be paraded through the streets of rome uh in shackles potentially being tortured as part of the uh the triumph that will inevitably uh come from this battle so there's not quite the let the captured officers go back to their fineries Mm that comes later in time no they become parade floats huh Mm -hmm. it would depend on the situation there would certainly be certain situations where commanding officers would be allowed to retreat this is a little too high stakes to let somebody like brutus uh go when you are somebody like mark antony or like octavian i mean there's a bit of bad blood (laughs) they've got some beef the fallout from this battle is more massive than, than just, you know, 
settling down the eastern provinces and and you know having a symbolic victory over the liberatories it has massive political and social fallout because there were all of these people who believed that the liberatories were going to be the winning side even up until these battles they also had seen the prescriptions happen they didn't want to be on a list and they saw that as being the future of you know their their houses in most cases because th- this is all very you know familial based right and you know if you said something against mark antony five years ago and you showed even the slightest indication that you might be supporting the liberatories that might be enough to have your entire estate seized and you stripped of your citizenship there are notable numbers of nobles who either fled the city or committed suicide upon receiving um, the the news that this battle had been won by the triumvirate. And if they fled the city, what, what would happen to their wealth? Were they able to actually abscond with uh, their position? They would be able to abscond with anything they could carry. So either way, the triumvirate's going to win economically. More or less. I mean... There was some forgiveness doled out a little bit afterwards, but it was mostly ceremonial in nature. If you ran away because you were a secret uh, liberatory supporter, they're probably going to take your wealth. And your position is now open to somebody who is a big fan of the triumvirate, just a just big old supporter. Over 14,000 liberatory forces join with the triumvirate forces at this point. Like the, the, the military. Yeah. The 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 army that is left over after these battles is just enormous. However, a lot of these guys are done fighting. They've served their terms, possibly more, and they are sick of all of this. Understandable. Understandable. Oh my goodness. I I the idea of successfully navigating this period of history as a as a wealthy Roman citizen is just mind-boggling to me. You have to make it 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 ends up being you know the odds of flipping heads multiple times in a row rather than just flipping heads. You have to pick right every time somebody asks you to take a side, and people ask a lot of different times. It's uh, it's really rough. Mind you, if you do make it through, you're a very, very wealthy and powerful person. But, um, you know, so I'm probably not crying too much about it. It's just more the the idea that anyone made it. Makes one appreciate the peaceful transfer of power. Yes, absolutely. After Philippi, the triumvirate kind of rearranges how they had things split up. Kind of based on, like, how good they do in the battle, which is bad for Lepidus. Oh, Gaul, Hispania, and Italia are all placed under the care of Octavian. That's a big chunk of territory. That's basically Italy, France with a little bit of Germany, and Spain. All goes to the direct command of Octavian. All of those eastern territories, so we're talking about Greece, Asia Minor, Judea, all of that stuff goes to uh, Mark Antony. Lepidus is left with the province of Africa which is basically modern-day Tunisia, plus a little bit of coastline. Not a thick strip. Mm -mm. Nope, it's not great, and I don't think he was very happy about it. 
<laughs> the reason Octavian got Italy was he agreed to take on a really big problem. You know all those rec- uh, those retiring soldiers we were just talking about? Mm-hmm. Did they want money or something? No, they wanted land. Oh. Every soldier on the completion of a campaign was promised good Italian land. So he wasn't even really allowed to just stick them in Spain or whatever, which is what later emperors are going to do with soldiers. He had to find land to give them somewhere in Italy. And so that left him with a bit of a problem, a problem that Mark Antony didn't want to deal with because he had seen how this type of problem goes in the past. Smart. Either he could tell the soldiers, sorry, you're not getting what we promised you over years and decades of fighting. Also, please don't be soldiers anymore. Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, can everyone can everyone put their sword in a bin real quick? That bin right there? Okay, now that we've uh, completed that process, I have an announcement for you. Or he could potentially evict some Romans from the land they currently hold to give to veterans. Hmm. Neither of which is a great look. However, Octavian did what Antony couldn't, which is pick a side. He said, nope, the troops are getting the land. They did the fighting. You guys didn't. Here, I'll do my best to compensate you, but you don't live here anymore. Ultimately, that's smart given the history of Rome and why the people uh, of Rome had to be part of the military in the first place. Yep, exactly. Besides, I mean, I think I think Octavian... It's, it's, it's really easy to ascribe vision to someone retroactively. It's very, very easy. Especially and, punk kids. And you try not to do that too much, but Octavian always seemed to have a sense of how power worked, of the mechanisms behind power where other other people uh, seemed less confident, maybe not less able, but certainly less um, incisive. And I think Octavian recognized that, well, if I have the power of the military and of this, or if I have the support of the military and the Senate and the recently demobilized military and the majority of citizens, what are they going to complain about? Like, what are they going to do if they're mad at me? Nothing, nothing disruptive on a, on a republic wide level. And that's what I'm shooting for. So oh, I guess that's too bad. I'm really sorry. And that was that. And even if they did try and organize something, they, by definition, are the people that weren't fighting. They're the least well-equipped to do so. Antony, for his trouble, wanted to complete Caesar's invasion of Parthia to really stabilize that eastern border to try and put an end to the, these uh, kind of inter- intermittent raids that they were getting. And there was a little bit of that revenge for Crassus involved there, but... You know, at that point, it's almost just rhetoric, I think, um, would be fair to say. Lepidus, you know, he had been essentially sidelined at this point and wouldn't be of that much consequence for, well, he'll be of a little bit of consequence once more, and that's about it. So we, we don't have to worry about him too much. He would continue to be a member of the triumvirate, but that was more for a, a, an image of continuity than any real power on his part. Julius Caesar had been posthumously recognized as a god, despite uh, Mark Antony's earlier uh, attempts to block that. And it's around this time that Octavian starts referring to himself as uh, the son of God. Oh. Yeah, that's a cool thing 
that this edgy teen starts doing fun um, that he was a pleasure to be around well i mean he was looking to increase his influence his prestige he's already got i i, I mean it was it was inevitable with his attempts to link himself to Julius Caesar because that's really all he has, right? Is that he is Caesar's son. He is his only legal heir. And now that he's a god, well, he's a son of that god. So yeah, it's it seems a little bit obnoxious, but it's you can you can see where that line of thinking comes from, at least. Question, did he start wearing black and go through a Visigoth phase? I can't. Cannot confirm that. Uh, the Visigoths weren't a thing, though. I did. You know what? A plus joke, though. I really liked it. I'm sorry that my, I'm sorry that my first instinct was to correct you and not to laugh. Thank you that for is, this joke retrospective. That was that, That's a big problem with jokes during HL101, everybody. Anyways, uh, Mark Antony, he kind of starts chirping Octavian a little bit because he started calling himself the son of God. I think that's also kind of a reasonable uh, response. But Antony starts noting that, you know, his troops had been the ones that were victorious at Philippi, which is true. And that Octavian had been a very weak commander at that battle, which was also true. And that Octavian tended to delegate any military duties to uh, other commanders, most famously uh, Marcus Agrippa, who was an old friend and an incredibly accomplished commander. But where we might see that as smart management, that is seen as, you know, culturally in Rome at that time as being a bad thing. Command your own armies. If you're a leader, command your own armies. It's also weird, though, because Mark Antony is probably more likely than Octavian at this point to have started wearing, like, a lot of eyeliner because he started really embracing, like, Mediterranean Greek culture. Oh. He claimed that it was buying Greek goodwill. This region had been so unstable that he was trying to show the people there that he did not think less of them for being Greek. He was attempting to meet them halfway on cultural issues. Uh, he started doing things like offering to protect Greek culture in exchange for them paying higher taxes and cracking down on anyone who you know, wouldn't support them, but doing it all as like this this friend of the Greeks. But like he started dressing that way and going to greek religious ceremonies he was inducted into uh various greek um secret cults at the time which was like a huge thing at that point in time by the way like these mystery cults super spooky sounding uh very mysterious i'm gonna level with you this has gone in a direction i didn't expect (laughs) really i'm glad no i i think if anyone went through like a a phase that's gonna look real bad in 10 years it's mark antony like was this a midlife crisis (laughs) I, I think I think that he honestly I think that he genuinely liked and respected Greek culture. It's just that the Romans were so xenophobic that that was like a super bad look on him. So he didn't like buy a sports chariot and no, he just converted and started like you know reading a lot of Homer, I guess. All right. So yeah, Octavian starts coming back at him with like. This whole, like, well, he's not a true Roman anymore thing. He's gone native. So there's a lot of chipping back and forth between the two of them. And then in 41 BCE, Mark Antony summons Cleopatra. This is Cleopatra VII, but no one calls her that. It's it's Cleopatra. Might as well only be one. Basically summons her to explain herself. Here's the problem. Cleopatra had been in a relationship with Julius Caesar. 
Um, they actually had a son together, a Caesarian, but it was outside of a marriage. And so according to Roman law, wasn't seen as legitimate. She had been living in Rome along with Caesar and Caesarian up until the assassination, at which point she fled immediately, which is very understandable. She has Caesar's only son with her. Hmm. Also, she's the queen of a foreign country. Maybe, maybe lay low for a while. That being said, she had also paid considerable sums of, of, of money to Cassius during the liberatory period. Oh. And he, that, that was really the part where he wanted a bit more explanation. Now, I mean, the, the real explanation here isn't really that hard to figure out. Egypt was a client kingdom at this point in time, and the west of the empire didn't have control over the, the provinces that were bordering Egypt or had any direct political, economic, or military control over Egypt. The Liberatores did. Of course she's going to pay them money. She couldn't defeat them militarily, so that's how it's going to be. Would Mark Antony have preferred that Egypt broke off and went completely independent? Because that was her other option. By the end of 41 BCE, uh, Mark Antony was living openly in a relationship with Cleopatra and okay, had yeah. uh, sired children with her. Huh. <laughs> so, like, yeah. There's a lot of reasons that people were accusing him of going native here. Are we sure this wasn't a midlife crisis? <laughs> I can't. I can't confirm that. You know this. Um, he was so taken by her that he actually went and killed her half-sister, Arsinoe, who had a similarly strong claim on the throne as Cleopatra did and could potentially pose a threat to her someday. Problem is, she was killed on the steps of a temple, which is a little bit of a no-no. Specifically in Egyptian culture? And Roman culture. Bit of a bit of a faux pas. Hmm. Uh, Temples are safe places. You don't kill people in temples. So yeah, again, Mark Antony's starting to like, like really test some folks. They're not too happy with them. Now, while he was off doing all of this, that whole resettlement uh, initiative that Octavian had going on, it actually wasn't going very smoothly, which is not terribly surprising. But what is surprising is that some nobles decided to take advantage of this chaos and spin it to their advantage. As we discussed earlier, Octavian had done a pretty good job of figuring out where the power lies in all of this and was feeling fairly confident about all of it. But a few nobles, um, specifically Lucius Antony, Mark Antony's brother, and Mark Antony's wife, uh, Fulvia, presumably not knowing about this whole Cleopatra thing. One would think declared open revolt against Octavian. They said, this is ridiculous. Good, hardworking Romans are being kicked off their land. And for what? They they had some other issues with the way that Octavian was ruling uh, with his legitimacy of government, things like that. They, you know, the usual uh, revolutionary speech, right? But the point is that this is Mark Antony's brother and Mark Antony's wife. And this is, again, not a good look for him. Lepidus, who, you know, we're, we're acting like he's gone. He was still in charge of the defenses of Rome, which is a thing he had been doing all along. That comes from his experience as master of horse. The troops that uh, Lucius and Fulvia pull together 
in revolt actually actually managed to drive Lepidus out of the city of Rome before reinforcements could come in and Octavian could uh, quash the rebellion. That's embarrassing. Lepidus was basically exiled to Africa. He was allowed to keep his, his, uh, his command, but that was about it. Obviously, Lucius was not treated kindly out of all of this. And while all of this is happening, just to add more complexity to all of this, Parthia invaded in the Eastern Territories. Where was Mark Antony at this time? Uh, in Alexandria, in Egypt. Okay. And he looked at the Parthian invasion, and he looked at the uprising in Italy, and he said, well, I got to go support my brother. And he packed a whole bunch of troops onto, uh, onto some boats, and they sailed for Italy, completely ignoring a foreign invasion that was going on at that very moment. Octavian and Antony met at Brundisium. That's that uh, that staging port city that we talked about uh, in the first half. Right. The troops refused to fight each other. Good call. They said, no. What are you guys doing? You're the two triumvirates. That guy over there, I served with him on this campaign. I'm not doing this. This is dumb. Figure it out. I think this is the only time in the story that this happens. And it's not something that happens a lot in history. And it's interesting how it makes things just kind of work. It's much better. I mean, it's, it, it is kind of ideal, isn't it? Christmas 1914. Christmas 1914. There you go. Now, to add one more coincidence to all of this stuff, Fulvia dies around this time. No reason to expect anything untoward. It was an illness. Okay. Um, she had been sick for some time and she took a turn for the worse and died. Octavian knew Fulvia and, and respected her a lot. I, I mean, yeah, she was an open revolt against him, but she was once a dear friend. She was also potentially the most powerful woman in Rome at that point in time. I, I kind of breezed over her a little bit, but she had a, a very interesting life during which she commanded a lot of authority and influence. The study of Roman powerful Roman woman would be interesting to me. It would be a very interesting topic. It's hard to do it kind of sucks but there's just not a ton of material to do a credit would take a a, a a lot of work pulling together some very sparse scraps which is too bad but don't feel pressure there no no that's, that's no 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 pressure at all it's just to say that there there are a few that we could spend some time on fulvia being one of them but uh yeah uh, in in general it's a it's a tough topic to get inf information on the death of fulvia led to well, and, you know, the troops refusing to fight led to a reconciliation between Mark Antony and uh, Octavian, at least for the time being. I think they realized the implications of what a full-blown civil war on the Italian continent would, or peninsula would look like. And I think Mark Antony realized that he probably wouldn't win it. And I think Octavian realized that it was counter to his goals, which mm. are double. We've talked about this a couple of times. Personal power and stability of the Republic. And I, I this this is a this is a personal opinion and I will fully cop to that, but I, I truly believe he did want both in um something approaching equal measure. I, I don't think the the desire for a, a powerful and stable empire was a show for the people like it had been with with previous populist leaders. I, I think that that's something that was legitimately dear to 
Octavian's heart. And fighting Antony Venom there was not going to further that goal in the least. And so they reconcile. And that's the end of the story. Perfect. Uh, no, we're just going to take a quick break there. And um, as soon as we come back, like literally the first thing we're going to do is watch the entire thing fall apart again. Yay. <laughs> Back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Mm-hmm. And when we took a break, things could have been very, very different with like a full on civil war on the Italian peninsula. It would have been a very different story than the one we're talking about. And it was narrowly avoided, not because of the actions of any of the major players, but by a troop rebellion, which is rare and dangerous for them. <laughs> it's surprising that they were willing to to step up in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 extremely rare that that happens. I mean, especially in a military set, uh, setting where basically dissent is conditioned out of you <laughs> as much as possible to to have the presence of mind to to you know, have commanders who say no, this isn't the right thing to do. To Octavian and to Mark Antony is possibly the most remarkable thing that's going to happen in this entire story. Were those leaders surprised? I mean, yeah. I mean, beyond the normal surprise, because they're... I guess I'm really asking whether they, whether they know they are them, so that answers itself, but... I think both of those men had a strong sense of self. I think both of them thought of themselves as very important men, I, I guess is the, the closest I can come to really answering your question. Anything beyond that gets a little too existential for this podcast. That's fair. Although I, I will say that sometimes Mark Antony seems to have thought of himself as a slightly greater man than he might have been. Telling but, you it's a midlife crisis. <laughs> we'll get to it. <laughs> Somebody told him he could pull off one of those really short Greek togas the one time and it was just downhill from there. I think it's some. I, I think in some sense, though, Antony, in, in between, you know, grieving for his his wife, I think he was probably relieved that it didn't come down to it. I don't think he wanted to fight Octavian then and there, potentially more because he knew that it wouldn't go well than than anything else. But I I, I don't think he was. I, I think I think he was back there as much for out of familial obligation as he was out of a. a strong sense of purpose or or a strong sense of of uh being against octavian he was he was there for his brother his family so do you think like octavian he also had a a desire for stability in the republic that you know went beyond his own ego um i feel as though no is the short answer i i i don't i think that Mark Antony was a very ambitious man who cared quite a bit about his own power and his own legacy. And I'll have some slightly clearer answers or, or, or examples as why I think that very soon. But I think that Octavian's vision of the Republic extended beyond himself and beyond his own years. And um, maybe that wasn't as fully developed at this point as it would be later in his life. Um, but I, I think the seeds of it were there. And I think that Mark Antony was 
someone who wished to rule and would rule at just about any cost. I'm not sure if this helps or not, but I think that if Octavian thought there was a better person to be running the Republic than him, he would support that person. Hmm. I don't think that he believed there was anyone else who could do as good a job as him, and he might have even been right. But that that I think would be the big difference. I, I and and again, this is this is a lot of personal speculation and a lot of uh, opinion Certainly. that I'm giving here. But I, I I think that he would support that person, and I think that Antony would agitate against them, and I think that's the key difference between them. That and Mark Antony made that eyeliner look good. <laughs> he wishes. While all of this other stuff has been going on, man, it's almost like history's complicated or something like that. It'd be nice if everything just happened one after the other, hey? Present me a linear story. No, 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 no. Do it. What do you think this is? Classic narrative history? This is modern narrative history, man. Abstract? No, modern. It's when you... Yeah, just listen to the bonus episode. It's all in there. No, no. Uh, while all of this was going on... See, here's, here's a crazy thing that always kind of sidelines me when I come across it. Um, when Caesar died, not everything that was involved in the story of Caesar went away. Because <laughs> it kind of feels like it did in some senses, right? Like, you know, Brutus was gone not that long afterwards, and, and Cicero was gone very soon afterwards, and like all of these people, it, it feels like a clean break there. Mm-hmm. Pompey was still just like tearing it up. Oh. He was still agitating. Yeah, I know, right? It seems weird that he'd still be going on about this, right? Was he in Rome? No, at this point he had been confined basically to Sicily. But I mean, even even 2 years before his uh before uh Caesar's assassination, Pompey had been in Spain. So, I mean, it's he's still just kind of doing his thing. Hmm. Um he's just rarely the biggest threat that anyone's facing, so he often gets kind of sidelined for all of that. Well, he started turning into a big threat again from Sicily. He, he gathered quite a number of troops. And Lepidus, uh, remember I said he would do one more big thing? Uh-huh. He decided to help. Ooh. No, 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 not help, not help Pompey. Sorry, oh, I should have okay. been more, more clear. He, he tried to help his fellow triumvirs. Oh. Yeah, he shouldn't have. He sent 14 legions from Africa to invade Sicily to help out. And he did it. He won. He beat Pompey. Great. And yep. everything was fine back in Africa. He technically overstepped his political boundaries significantly, egregiously. That Ooh. is Octavian's territory as oh. part of Italia. Uh. He just he effectively invaded Octavian. Yeah. yeah. This is all... A technicality and it is all an attempt to get rid of Lepidus because Lepidus absolutely saved Octavian's bacon. He did not have the time or resources to deal with Pompey at this point in time. Um, so... But they were tired of Lepidus. Uh... So they used this as an excuse to basically strip him of what little remained of his power. And that's the last we're going to hear from him. I'll, I'll make one more note about Lepidus. For the rest of his life, uh, he served as a senator. He was, you know, he was still a nobleman, um, but just a senator, no higher offices than that. For the rest of his life, Augustus would always call his name last when taking votes. Oh. Every single 
vote. So Octavius is kind of a dick. Sometimes, yeah. Oh. I guess he's in his early 20s right now. I mean, this is this is a thing that is, I, I was going to say, a, a theme in Roman history and then a theme in HI 101, but it's just a theme of humanity is that some, some people can be more than one thing. Sometimes they're really great people and also kind of petty. And it's okay. I guess, but that's humanizing them. And <laughs> Yeah, how dare we? Yeah. Before Lepidus kind of saves the day here, though, um, Antony had returned to the eastern provinces to finally deal with that pesky Parthian invasion. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. I uh, finally got around to it. And part of the reason that Lepidus invaded was because Octavian wasn't doing that great a job of dealing with this uprising. You said part of the reason Lepidus invaded? Yeah, invaded Sicily. Okay. He had, however, sent his lieutenant, Agrippa, uh, to deal with the, the naval portion of the campaign. And he was relatively successful. The Romans haven't traditionally been very successful up till this point with naval engagements. They're they're a land people. Yeah, they, they don't, don't like do boats. Yeah, not really well. But Agrippa actually got fairly skilled at it. And and that was that that became a very valuable skill because he was one of the few commanders who actually was skilled at, at any sort of naval combat. So that's going to be uh, very important for him coming up soon. And throughout their you know completely separate campaigns, Antony and Octavian just kept on bickering. Like they would just be at each other all the time. They seemed to really dislike each other by this point. I mean, they had come to the brink of civil war a number of times, but like even even a veneer of civility seemed to be getting to a point where it was difficult for them. Antony had actually uh, married Octavian's sister, Octavia, just after this near miss of a, a civil war as, as sort of a uh, an attempt to create closer bonds through matrimony. It's it's a, I mean, it's a thing that happens in politics all the time, right? Yeah, it's, it's still know. weird. It, it, well, yeah, absolutely, I agree. And I mean, like you know, she got ignored constantly for Cleopatra, so that just makes it kind of sad. Super weird. Yep. Awkward family dinners. Um, you know what, though? Octavia ended up being like a really good calming presence. She often mediated conflicts between the two of them. Would, you know, do things like getting Octavian to promise to send more troops to help support Antony against the Parthians. Was really helpful in that, that whole relationship, actually. By all accounts, Octavian was really close to his sister. And, and it was, you know, she's one of the few people he would really listen to when the table when the cards were on the table. Unfortunately, despite all those promises, Octavian often had to go back on them just in order to deal with the the problem in Sicily. And Antony got really upset about it because he just felt poorly supported. He feel, felt like he could only defend. He couldn't really do anything to solve the root problem, by which he meant invade Parthia, um, that which has been kind of a white whale for the Roman administration for a while now. So he turned to Cleopatra for uh, military support. Is that something that Roman leaders would do? Get client states to provide military support? Doesn't matter. Whole new ballgame. Triumvirate's in power now. He controls the eastern provinces, and the eastern provinces have dominion over their uh, their client kingdoms, and Egypt is a client kingdom. 
So okay. now he is getting Egyptian troops in his army, and he now has an army of 200,000 foot soldiers. Oh. Mm-hmm. How many of them were f- from Rome, from, from Italy? Um, I believe it's about 120,000 were from Rome and 80,000 were from Egypt. I might have that wrong. I'll, I'll double check and I'll stick it in the notes. But Egypt contributed like a significant portion of the troops. It was nearly an Egyptian army at this point, um, especially considering that, you know, how, how it was gained. Um, yeah, he's got a native. <laughs> so he begins this invasion by taking the kingdom of Armenia uh, and then continuing on through. He, he makes the, the king of Armenia a, a vassal king, basically. basically basically says, well, you're under Roman control now. Stay a king and, or sorry, uh, uh, support us and you can stay a king. But, you know, we're calling shots. The king went, okay. And then he invades into uh, Parthia itself over the next couple of years, but he overextended really badly. He only left two legions to defend his entire supply train uh uh-huh and the parthians managed to hit it and cut it off there is a story out there saying that the king of armenia along with like a significant cavalry troop basically watched this happen while doing nothing (laughs) antony continued fighting in uh in parthia for a while here but I mean, he managed to keep up a siege for like two months and he ran up or he ran out of food long before the people in the besieged city did. So um, was, was there any reason he didn't try to push back his supply line and establish? Antony doesn't know when to quit. Oh. As we've seen before and as we'll probably see again. Yeah, I, I mean, he, he should have reinforced his supply line. Yes, he was overcommitted in the active fighting he had going on at the time and couldn't pull troops away to reinforce his supply line. Um, he was overcommitted. Um, that's really the best answer I can give to you. A wiser commander might have given up the siege and waited until next year, but yeah, here we are. Once he was finally forced to retreat, though, because he had no supplies, <laughs> by the time the entire campaign was over, by the time he got back to Alexandria, between uh, just normal fighting, pushing into Parthia, taking Armenia, and the just horrendous journey back from Parthia through enemy lines, he managed to lose 40% of his original army. That's going to sound terrible until Napoleon tries to take Russia. Sure. Sorry, absolutely. That was, that's not sequitur. That's a lot. That's a, that's a big amount. <laughs> yeah, that was more than... That was more the reaction I was going for. Yeah, it's it's just it's bad. I mean, he had he had a massive army. He he was he had the Parthians outmatched. He should have been fine. He was not. He was he completely mismanaged the entire thing. This was on him. Sometimes things come up. Sometimes you are outmatched or you are outmaneuvered. He he dropped the ball on this one. Octavian accused him once again of going native, of basically saying like. If he was a real Roman commander, he would have known what to do with those troops. <laughs> That's a sicker burn than delegating to Agrippa. Oh, yeah, absolutely it is. 
but like really, really like laid into the guy though. He also decided that he was going to start pushing for his end game. He took a bit of a gamble. He felt like it was a safe gamble, but he said, listen, I'm going to call the, the civil war over. There's no more civil war. Me and Mark Antony, we're good. There's no beef here. Tell you what, just to prove it to you, I don't even want to be consul anymore. I've been consul for a while now. I will step down from being consul if Mark Antony does the same. Proclaims this in 36 BCE. Mark Antony never, never steps down from being consul. Hmm. So neither, neither does Octavian. As I said, a bit of a risk. Mm-hmm. I calculated one. He wasn't worried. It seems he'd gotten to know Mark Antony well enough. By 34 BCE, Antony had uh, gotten another army pulled together. Lots of Egyptian troops in this one. And reinvaded Armenia. This time he overthrew the kingdom. He's taking it for real this time. And upon its defeat, he returned to Alexandria and performed a kind of a almost a mocking version of the Roman triumph through the streets of Alexandria. Now, triumphs traditionally at this point are done only in Rome. So that's a big deal. That's a very symbolic deal. And at the, at the, at the climax of this whole spectacle, when he's up on a balcony surrounded by Cleopatra and his several children with Cleopatra, he formally declares an end to his alliance with Octavian. Ooh. Yeah. And then he does something that Octavian's not going to know about for a little bit, but he changes his will. However, the main concern for Octavian out of all of this isn't the, isn't the spectacle, it's not the capture of Armenia, it's not any of these weird declarations. It's that the one other person that's on this balcony, along with Cleopatra and Mark Antony and their children, is a young boy, Caesarian. This is a problem. As you remember, Caesarian is... Julius Caesar's uh, natural son with Cleopatra, mm-hmm. um, albeit Ill- uh, illegitimate under Roman law. Thing is, when succession is unclear, the amount of claim that a confirmed bastard has on a throne is not that much different than a legally adopted but much less related uh, claim it has. They're very similar claims. Especially when the bastard child is just as highborn. Oh yeah, it's it's not as though it's not as though he's some nobody they dug out of a, a, a tiny village in the middle of nowhere. He is also the well, the current king of Egypt actually uh, at this point Cleopatra has him ruling beside him uh, uh. Te- technically. Everyone knows who's calling the shots here, but I mean, he's the king of Egypt. That's, you know, that'll do it. It's got still got some pull in this day and age. And that whole Caesarian thing, that that bothers Octavian a lot because he's accomplished a lot on his own. His name is worth a lot on its own at this point, but a lot of his power still derives from being Julius Caesar's heir. Right. And this is a threat. This whole like declaration thing is also like really polarizing among the Roman elite. There are numerous aristocrats who abandon Rome for Alexandria and decide like, hey, I think Antony might be able to make a go of this. Uh, maybe they have problems with Octavian for various reasons. Um, there are plenty of reasons that he's given them that we've kind of had to breeze over a little bit, but that's you know that's the nature of ruling 
can't make everyone your friend. <laughs> if only there was some sort of pithy quote from a, from Italian on this. Hmm. Hmm. Um, but there were a few who went, uh, what is Antony doing? I, I thought I was following a Roman consul. What is going on here? <laughs> He's... There are there are statues of Mark Antony now in Alexandria where he's wearing a pharaoh beard, right. and I'm not okay with this. <laughs> like it gets it gets a little awkward for everybody, and some leave, and a couple of them inform Octavian of the change that's been made to Antony's will. Octavian decides to make another no coming back type move. He bursts into the temple of the Vestal Virgins. Okay. And he seizes Antony's will. So Antony's still filing his will in Rome. Yes, that is a an absolute necessity. That is not a thing that he has managed to break away from. You don't make one speech and, and have that be uh, no longer a legally binding uh, necessity. Okay. Um, so yeah, he has, he has filed this uh, with the Vestal Virgins. Octavian violates their temple. Mm-hmm seizes the will which is incredibly illegal mm-hmm. and as soon as he sees what is in that will uh makes it very very public as public as he can make it he is thrilled with what he has found because if there was nothing in there that could have been a game over for him he's in a bit of a tight spot but what he's found in this newly filed will antony has not only freed the kingdom of egypt from any client status under Rome. Oh dear. He has also left all of the various kingdoms of the Eastern provinces to his children with Cleopatra. He is essentially separating from Rome posthumously. Huh. Which is a weird move. That's that that'd make the will reading pretty awkward. But here's the thing. He's not really making it a secret to people, just to the people who would care. It's not as though he's gonna spring this on Cleopatra and her children. It's not as though his lieutenants don't know that this is the intention. And honestly, you don't do a thing like this unless you're planning to make similar bids while you're alive. He's just trying to make sure that all of his bases are covered in case anything happens. But now the cat's out of the bag. And all of these senators who have had minor quibbles with Octavian over domestic issues, well, they just figured out which side they're on. And I'm sure Octavian is very willing to embrace them. Oh, he's absolutely fine with taking them back. Of course he is. The uh, the Senate declares Mark Antony specifically and Egypt as a kingdom, rogue entities, and declares war. The declaration of war is leveled against Egypt more because they're trying not to make it too big of a divisive issue within the king or within the republic. They don't want it to be like this yet another civil war. Right. So they're not dealing with civil war. They're dealing with a rogue kingdom. And uh, one particular Roman who happens to be in that kingdom and seems to support it for who knows what reason. Again, it's this eye towards stability, always. Each side has around 200,000 soldiers that they're bringing to the table in this. And 
also substantial navies, especially considering the time. I mean, there are a good 300 Roman ships uh, and and as many as 500 uh, Egyptian, although those not all of those are fighting ships. And the Egyptian ships are considerably larger and, and better equipped. But the Roman ships, being smaller, are much more maneuverable. And the entire navy is under the command of Marcus Agrippa, who has become a very skilled naval officer. And the Egyptians just don't have that level of skill with the navy. They've just never needed to develop it. So they haven't traditionally uh, maintained a naval force? I think it's more a case of they haven't had a significant naval threat um, in a long enough time to be as battle-ready as Romans who just finished fighting the uh, Sicilian uprising a couple of years before. They've they've certainly maintained a navy. I mean, Egypt borders several seas and, and needs to uh, have some presence in that capacity. It's just that Roman tactics when it comes to naval battle are unusual, to say the least. They're generally focused around basically putting normal soldiers on boats and trying to make it as much like a battlefield as quickly as possible. Floating land. Yeah. Um, and and the Egyptians are, are you know, using archers and things like that. And, and it, it's not a, a very compatible uh, fighting style. And it, it absolutely leans in the favor of the, the Roman uh, Navy. As I said, partially composition, partially experience. Both sides actually took some time to engage both navally and on land, which is unusual because it's very Roman to, at this point, just go out and meet your opponent on the battlefield and have this one glorious battle that determines everything. That is the that that is the the height of of Roman military tradition. Uh, this this glorious pitched battle, and neither of them actually really goes for it right away. They both kind of are using what's known as, as the Fabian strategy, who's, uh, which is named after a Roman who came uh, about 150 years before this, who basically went, why should I fight when I'm at a disadvantage? I'm going to fall back until I'm at an advantage, and then we'll fight. He was removed from office from this suggestion, by huh. the way. Yeah, people don't like it even though it works. Yeah, that was while facing Hannibal during the Second Punic War. Oh, yeah. Um, where they were heavily outmatched. Um, probably the Fabian strategy uh, saved Rome, period, uh, at that point in time. He was not appreciated for it. Antony and uh, and Octavian, though, consistently fall back, uh, making sure to, uh, to, to find a situation in which they're at a better advantage. And it really took until there was a massive sea battle a, a naval battle before anything really happened on the land other than sort of probing skirmishes on the 2nd of september 31 bce at what's known as the battle of actium <laughs> a former general of mark antony's uh leaked a battle plan to octavian who made significant use of it obviously why would you not he passed these along to agrippa uh, who determined that with a bit of tweaking, they could make uh, the Egyptian navy think that they had broken through and you know, be ready to surround the Roman uh, navy while 
in fact kind of setting up a trap for them. Navies at this point in time, you don't want to be too far off the shore. And the the Roman navy managed to maneuver between the Egyptian navy and the shore. Okay. They sank every ship. Ah. Most with fire. There are few places more hellish than being on a burning boat. The fun thing about it being so close to land is that all of those ground troops got to see the entire navy being destroyed by the Romans almost effortlessly. That's that's some pretty effective messaging. 19 legions and 12,000 cavalry fled from Antony's side. Oh. We could get into the rest of the battles battle by battle. I don't think it's worth mentioning at this point. Antony had almost no soldiers left. He uh, retreated and retreated until he got back to Alexandria, bleeding men almost every step of the way. Octavian was unrelenting. I think that fit both of his motivations in life. I think it was important to him that the Roman people see that this is what happens when you try to divide Rome. I also think that he was done with Mark Antony. It's understandable. I think, yeah, I, I, I really think it is. I um, pushed a few things. I feel like he gave him enough chances. I feel like he maybe gave him more than enough if, if he made any mistakes here. And cooperation had patently failed. There was nothing to be gained by pursuing that strategy. So why pursue it? Eliminate the threat instead. Cleopatra wrote, uh, reached out by messenger uh, to Octavian. She offered to abdicate the throne on the condition that her sons retain the throne and that uh, Egypt remain a separate but client kingdom. She was turned down. Antony reached out by messenger to Octavian. He offered him an enormous sum of money and offered to live out the rest of his days as a private citizen in Athens, never aspiring to the lowest of political or military positions. So he realized how much he'd done messed up. Octavian turned him down. By the end of July of 30 BCE, Antony was driven back into uh, Alexandria and it was a matter of time before uh, the Roman troops either killed him or took him. And he received word that uh, Cleopatra had died. This was actually part of a, a ruse to protect Cleopatra, but through some miscommunication, he was not let in on this. Ooh. He stabbed himself. He did so poorly. Oh. He was informed after stabbing himself that she was in fact still alive and had himself brought to her where she was hiding and ended up dying in her arms. Oh. Yeah. Couldn't even do the falling on the sword thing, right? I don't mean to be... I don't mean to be petty about Mark Antony. It's just... There's there's something there's something so frustrating about him getting so close to greatness and then failing so miserably and not even because of one massive thing, but because of so many small things and refusing to be content. This is another historical non sequitur, but man, am I remembered uh, reminded of King Charles? Yeah, good point. 
Yeah, that's a very that's a very apt comparison. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll maybe I'll maybe write a bit more in 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 notes about that. But yeah, that's that's a really good one. He would not make any concessions to Parliament, and um, Parliament tried really hard. Parliament tried so hard to just work with him. Please just stop. Please just stop. And they were eventually forced to execute him. Almost as much from his 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 sheer stubbornness and ill will uh, than any unreasonableness on the part of Parliament. They just wanted him to work with them. It was just he was the worst. It was awful, awful. And turns out Mark Antony was just the worst. Yeah, kind of. And I mean, I, you know, he 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 achieved so much, and it's so frustrating because of that there was a point in his life where he could have just stopped and lived with his egyptian queen mistress very happily and kind of quietly if he hadn't let his ego get the better of him Mm -hmm. and then he managed to have a dumber death than romeo and juliet yeah i mean not by much but hey this really happened, so he doesn't have that excuse. Well, and he did a bad job of stabbing himself. Yeah, like you know, it's it's kind of the uh, the exact opposite of Romeo and Juliet because um, Cleopatra, who was discovered shortly thereafter and uh, held in in captivity, uh, also managed to commit suicide, but uh, uh, seems to have poisoned herself properly. Oh, okay. um, yeah, it's, it's like poetry, it rhymes. Uh... <laughs> I mean, we we don't actually know for sure how Cleopatra died. the the um, the The classic story is that her her handmaid managed to smuggle an asp into her uh, in a in a basket of figs, uh, and that she got the the asp to, asp to bite her. Uh, all of the very old uh, accounts say on the arm, actually, but sort of the the Renaissance ideal of this uh, drawing from from Shakespeare uh, actually is is the you know biting on the breast. Um, likely that's not how she would have done it. That's a bad, it's like a bad way to die. It hurts yeah. a lot. Also, they're not always fatal. Yeah, you can sometimes survive those. And like, I feel like if you're at that point, you, you want to make sure it's done right. More likely, what happened is that she drank a a, a mix of, I believe what I saw was uh, hemlock and opium or something like that. I was gonna expect hemlock. I mean, yeah, uh, maybe there there might have been another one that was in there, but you know, something to a get the job done and b you know just put 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 you sleep through it, not not go through it a horrible excruciating. I'm I'm not sure how long it takes an asp to kill you, but I bet it's not a couple seconds. I bet it's an hour or two. No, maybe more. I'm not a snake expert. What? Don't listen to me for snake stuff. That's not why I'm here. <laughs> Caesarian was executed about a month later. Yeah, of course. He was 17 years old. He did nothing to deserve it other than who he was. And yet I don't know what else Octavian could have done. Uh as he was advised once, uh two Caesars is one too many. True. In the aftermath of of this this final war with Antony, um, Octavian pardoned all political enemies, no matter what they had done, tried to bring as many of these uh, senators who had fled to Egypt back into the fold. 
Um, because this is a time for conciliation. You can't keep fighting. His only real threat was gone. Yeah, especially now that he had so decisively stamped it out. Mm -hmm. This is the wise and benevolent approach. His new goal was just simply holding the level of power he had while maintaining the illusion of uh, continuity from the Republic. But from here on out, things get very unrepublican with their power structure. Um, the Senate isn't... They, they, they can't give him new powers fast enough, honestly. He relinquished all control over any provinces in the year 27 BCE. Um, the Senate immediately asked him to take it all back, plus all of his other provinces and all of the other armies, please. Please command everything. Egypt had become a personal possession after Cleopatra was... Cool. was yeah. Yeah, so it wasn't even really a client kingdom. It just belonged to the emperor of Rome, and it would remain that way for quite some time. People think desert when they hear Egypt, but the Romans thought breadbasket of the empire. Hmm. The farming from the Nile Delta was second to none. It was an incredibly lush and, and fertile place. Uh, and, and the bread that was grown in Egypt fed the legions that marched across the all of Europe. So that was that was valuable. Octavian used his private fortune a few times to get things done when the Senate wouldn't, to try and, number one, move things along, number two, ingratiate himself with the common people, number three, demonstrate to the Senate that it doesn't matter if I have your support or not, I'm going to do what I want. And it was not anything so insidious as that. I mean, he the, the one project I saw was that he paid for um, road paving for this massive network of roads that the Senate basically said, sorry, we can't afford to make this work right now. And he said, that's fine. Don't, don't even worry about it. There were coins with his face stamped on them specifically to commemorate the, the paving of those roads. The people loved it. They loved it so much. Finally, a politician who can get things done. How, how wealthy was he at this point? You know, setting aside the fact that he just took the breadbasket of the empire. Um, I think unbelievably would be fair to say he had a, a, an immense personal fortune. Would he have surpassed Crassus and, and the I doubt riches? he ever surpassed Crassus, but Crassus had a, an obscene amount of money. He had enough money that at his death, he didn't really leave money to his heirs. He left it to his office and it became the treasury of the Republic. Oh, pretty good on the 16th of january 27 bce he was given the title augustus by the roman senate as well as princeps which is first citizen basically does augustus have a pre-existing meaning it it means basically what august means in english it's it's kind of magnificent honored all of that stuff real. but it, it was a, a in common usage at that time uh as a word but not as a title okay so there wasn't a, a previous person who had that title correct uh he was he was granted the right to place uh what was known as the civic crown over uh his door uh, a crown made of oak and he was given the right to place laurels on his doorposts that is sounds like a kind of small deal uh romans were big on crowns triumphs the oak crown was a representation of like political and military authority, whereas the laurels were a representation of divine authority. That was basically saying that 
Augustus was the Empire at that point, and that wouldn't be inaccurate necessarily. The rest of his reign, I would say, is categorized by stability, growth, um, institution, uh, benevolence. And over the years, it slowly stopped looking anything like a republic at all and became the empire. There's a reason that we talk about him as the first emperor. But all of that stuff is a little bit harder to talk about because it took place over 40 years. He ruled until he was 75. Ruling until you're old is very helpful. Lots of turnover is really disruptive and makes for difficult progress. But on the flip side of that, you don't necessarily always rule for 40 years if anyone is out to get you. So it's a bit of a feedback loop, and he got the good version of it. Hmm. He ruled for longer than anyone else in the rest the, the Western Roman Empire by almost almost double. Oh wow. I think it's fair to say that the Roman Empire would not have looked anything like it did were it not for his guidance and vision. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that he was a perfect man, he was far from it, but as soon as these wars were over, a new Octavian kind of emerged, one who was a lot less vindictive, one who was a lot less angry, and one who was a lot less violent. Yes, there were military campaigns, but it was about solidifying the borders, not not expanding them. He actually set legal limits on the sides of the empire. You know, he, he brought in the aqueducts to make sure that all uh, Roman citizens had access to clean water. Um, it's, it's, I, I could go on with this list forever, and, and I'm sure most people are somewhat familiar with it, but Caesar being stabbed to death has nothing to do with any of this. In fact, it may have made it slightly harder if there had been some sort of transfer of power from Julius Caesar to Octavian, if he hadn't had to spend 15 years establishing himself as uh, an unquestioned authority, who knows what he could have accomplished with that time. However, um, would he have been an unquestioned authority? That's a, that's absolutely the counterpoint to all of that. It's it's quite possible that that trial by, by fire is what made Octavian into Augustus. It's not really useful to speculate. Um, it could easily go either way. But, I mean, the the state of Rome was not finalized with that assassination. It was finalized with Octavian's death at 75 and a peaceful transition of power. It was finalized by, you know, there's there's that famous quote from, from Octavian, supposedly on his deathbed, of, um, I, I found a Rome of bricks and I leave you a Rome of marble. Some of that is literal, but some of that is 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 quite poetic mm-hmm. um and and quite evocative and and I think that's it, you know i i did that I did that q and a episode with uh with Phil and Miller when we couldn't record last month, and one of one of the questions was you know who who was the best Roman emperor and I, I think I, I think I said something to the the the, the effect of I, I didn't feel like starting a fight on the internet today, but I, I don't think you can pick someone other than Augustus as the single best. He did it really well. They there there isn't an empire without him. There just isn't, and and whatever would exist without him, I, I would it have been made of marble? I don't know. I I, I don't think that anyone knows, but I, I feel like the odds are 
significantly decreased. Did Do you think he realized during his reign that he had taken Rome far away from being a republic? I think so. I also think that it was important to him that he not telegraph that too much. He was uh, insistent that the institution of the Senate remain, and he retained uh, the title of princeps, not, you know, emperor uh, for his entire life. He insisted on being called the first citizen, not, uh, not you know, supreme emperor. There, there, there were a lot of the more grandiose and, and kind of garish uh, trappings of the office that would, you know, that the future emperors would very much embrace that. Uh, Augustus chose not or chose to downplay um, specifically because he understood the image that it presented to the people when he died at 75 you would have to be you would have to be basically 50 or 60 before you even remembered a time where Julius Caesar was alive and that was a terrible time to be alive in Rome it's you know this comes back to what I was saying before about you know surviving your way through all of this that's a tough time to be a Roman. And then before that was the the conflict with numerous outside forces. And before that was Sulla. And before that was the social wars. And before, like, it, it stretched back well more than 100 years. But there were, there were Romans who were, you know, 50 years old who had never known another leader other than Octavian. And he had been a good leader. He studied the ship. They didn't care necessarily that this wasn't strictly a republic anymore and i mean what what makes it not a republic anymore is the structure of power centering around one person who has uh, uh the authority to basically override any other mechanism in government which is what octavian had by the end you know there's there's other specific stuff that you can get into but octavian wasn't calling himself an emperor and no one was really calling octavian an emperor but he was he was the first one, and, and there's no question of that. But what he did for Rome, for the entity of Rome, is to so very gently let them, you know, lead them from republic to empire that people didn't realize that's what was happening. If Caesar had a major flaw, it was that he moved too fast. Maybe he didn't have the luxury of moving slower. Maybe Octavian just got lucky on that front. But I think that a lesser person might not have realized that he had the time there or had the patience to utilize it properly. And, and so, yeah, I, I, have, I have a lot of respect for him as, as, as an emperor in that, in that particular pantheon of, of leaders. It's hard to do better than he did. Still, it's amazing how much of that leadership and how much of his early years of leadership were shaped by the antagonism with Mark Antony. You don't, you, you know, it, 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 I, I think you were maybe right when you point out that without the struggle there, he would have been, he, he would have likely been a, a fairly different person, but Rome certainly would have been a very different place. And the people in Rome would have viewed Octavian as a different person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Antony, Antony's contribution to Rome was giving Rome someone to unite against. And maybe he didn't necessarily deserve that, but that's the, that's the life he ended up with. And there's something to be said for that part 
uh, even if it isn't always a glorious one. So now we've gone from the part where people traditionally end their talk about the Republic, the assassination of Caesar, uh, and brought it to finally, I think, the place where it really ends, which is which is the 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 Pax Romana under under Octavian. I, I think that you can't talk about the death of the Republic without those wars, without those conflicts, without those questions of what comes next. And it takes it takes a long time, but the answer is Octavian does. So, anything you can think of that we didn't cover, or anything that you'd like to comment on? No, it 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 follows a a good flow from the dramatic set piece of Caesar getting murdered on the steps, as Shakespeare constructed it, to a, a gentle passing into the Roman peace, as he said. So mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't often get stories where you can kind of trail off that way unless it's just i didn't have a better ending <laughs> like there there isn't a clear end point it's it's nice to have someone who put things in order to a point where their life could become boring yeah that's rare for people we talk about 2000 plus years later yeah especially people who've seized all the power in their entire society yeah and and he was he was he was such an ambitious man but that that concern for Rome, that 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 pure unbridled patriotism that he seems to have had, it's amazing what that did to keep it in check. And I, I think it stands out all the more starkly when you look at who comes after him, where maybe the sanctity of Rome isn't necessarily the most important thing to some of the later emperors. And and when you when you look into what what's different what's missing i find a lot of times it's it's that ability to hold other aspirations rather than just your own so that is antony and octavian thank cool. you so much for coming on today it was really true having it was a real treat having you here thank you for having me The assassination of Caesar might have been the end of the Roman Republic, but the transition from the civil wars of Octavian and Antony to the peace of Augustus is the real beginning point of the empire. Without this one man's steady rule, Roman history would have been undoubtedly different. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about alchemy. That episode will be up November 1st. Since HI101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.